Tired of ads crashing your comedy podcast party? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts, included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app or visit amazon.com slash comedy ad free. That's amazon.com slash comedy ad free. And catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And here's your prescription. I know just the pharmacy to get this filled. Who are you? A pharmacy benefit manager. A middleman your insurer uses to decide which medicines you can get, what you pay, and sometimes even which pharmacy you should go to. Why can't I go to a pharmacy in my neighborhood? Because I make more money when you go to a pharmacy I own. <laughs> no one should stand between you and your medicine. Visit phrma.org slash middleman to learn more. Paid for by Pharma. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creeps and Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. And I'm Morgan. Happy July. Happy July. I can't even believe it. No, and like, well, June, sorry. Well, June is your month. You know, it's your birthday month. July really is your month. You know that. Yeah, it really is. Because that's that's at the end of June. And so all my birthday parties would be the last weekend of June, which is always July. And June always just wrecks the fuck (laughs) out of you. June (laughs) steamrolls the shit out of me. (laughs) I think it's like Gemini season steamrolls the shit out of me. Because when cancer season comes in, I'm good. I'm feeling the vibes. We're back. I think the Gemini season, because I am on the cusp of Gemini and cancer it just brings out this side of me that is my dark side <laughs> it's your btk it's my btk side <laughs> and i self-destruct that is it exactly. is a self-destruct side but yeah, i'm really proud of you this year this this june i'm kept really proud cool. of you oh stop this is a really good june. I, you had a really hard june and you did fucking amazing so far like well, i mean so far but like we're at picture, the point. Yeah. Picture, guys, just so you have a little reference to this. Taylor has not went to Italy yet. As we're recording this. As we're recording this. So we found out when? A week ago. A week ago that we needed 145 in the works. Done. Done before she leaves for Italy. <laughs> we thought we had an extra week, but we forgot that the 4th of July was a and holiday. And the 4th of July is on a fucking Tuesday, which should be illegal. Yeah, I agree. Saturday. It just blows my mind whenever a holiday is in the middle of the week. I agree. So we found out and it was a little notice and we were like, oh, oh. We We gotta get that shit done. So we had to cram another episode in, but that is okay. So it's just so you guys know that this is past Morgan and Taylor talking by a month. Next week. By a literal month. By a a whole entire month. But next week will be the first week, 146. It'll be a creepy account. Will be the first week that Morgan and I are back on the microphone after me going to Italy. Because also, guys, the 4th of July is mine and Logan's anniversary dating and married. Can we talk about your wedding real quick? Oh, my God. Guys, her wedding was awesome. No, my wedding was so fun. I have stolen so much inspo from that. You know, like, Just like I have to have an ending dance. I have to have fireworks. Yeah. I have to have yes. shooter. That part of the video gets me every time <laughs> because I didn't even know what happened. I was no one so knew. drunk that whenever I watch that video, I'm like, oh, yeah, there we are. Project X. Yeah, like, there we go. Being it's absolutely feral. At, feral. At the... In some Out. random place in Tennessee. What in was this it called? Harrison, Tennessee Harrison, or Georgetown. Tennessee, Georgetown. I don't even know. <laughs> it's just out in the boonies. Gorgeous place, though. Gorgeous. But 
out in BF nowhere Outside. and we're just project Xing, right? And there's a big white chapel up on the hill behind us while we're, you know, face we're down, li- ass up. And the double the cross fisting. on top of the chapel is lighting up. Blood. Anyway, so that's all I remembered of the wedding. Yeah. And a couple other things, blood everywhere, cigars. And then eating my wedding cake we're watching, with our mouths. Watching this wedding video back and I'm like, this is it. Like, this is Project X. Like, this is so, so much fun. fun. Like, reminisce. And then all of a sudden, the end scene shoots to Taylor on this old vintage back of the car. She's got sparklers coming up from the ground. He's swinging her around, kissing her. I'm like, where did this come from? How did I miss that? Did that happen? I had no idea. No one knew. Because we we wanted to like do a full like drive off. So we had the driver come and pick us up in this vintage car and we did the full send. I remember the sparklers, bitch. But you did not. I was at the end of the line. Like the the front of where you would have exited out. But that wasn't even down there. And I don't remember. No car, no No. sparklers. I (laughs) don't. the car? No. Well, y'all were too busy. Hi, my name is Morgan and welcome to Disney Channel. Disney Channel. (laughs) When I'm like running and I'm I'm, like, guys, I sprinted (laughs) through the sparklers. You're not supposed to sprint. They're like, you're supposed to like walk dip like kind of jog so like you get the pictures no me and logan are sprinting because i'm about to piss my pants i could not pee the entirety of my wedding because it took so long it took like 50 of us to get me in my skims which yeah skims and then hear big this, sponsor us. wearing the long-legged romper couldn't gotta get be out. fully naked gotta be fully naked and the skims didn't have the. i didn't get the one i wasn't thinking that had the like pee slit yeah so we at the towards the end of the i night, hate we those, eventually though. cut them Remember, I was like, take a scissor to my vagina. I was really good with scissors that day, so. (laughs) Yeah, you really were. (laughs) Morgan literally did not get her dress hemmed, and I walk into the bridesmaids getting ready room. She's cutting people's fucking dresses up. I'm I'm cutting my own dress, and I said, don't let Taylor see. Yeah. Turned out well for the the pictures. It didn't even matter. By the end of the night, it was shredded at the bottom, I will say. Everyone's dresses were fucked by the yeah. end of the day like it didn't matter and we didn't spend yeah, yeah we didn't even spend a lot of money on it. i didn't want people to spend a lot of money on it yeah. because that wasn't the point like i if if it was all about aesthetic like it is now versus then like i would have had a completely different wedding but it was so fun at though. this point in time like no one gave a fuck we were living our best lives we had the most fun but i tell everyone if i like what is the one thing that you loved the most about your wedding my favorite thing was the final dance. Me yeah, too. the first dance is fine. I loved it, but like nothing compares for me memory-wise to as that final dance. Yeah. And it was because like I did it you almost so, got dropped on your head. Yeah, I did it so You're really trusting of Logan I was like, day. Logan, I want you to spin me around. I want to sit my hands up. The, I want my head to scrape the ground. <laughs> I want my head to scrape the ground. Guys, I had my my amazing wedding coordinator. She was Fucking phenomenal. Zandra in Cleveland, Tennessee from Ever After Bridal, her and Kendra planned and coordinated my entire wedding. They were great. And I basically, you guys know me, I'm like psycho. Yeah. You know, control freak. So I basically walked in. Since when? (laughs) You never thought of that. I walked in there and I'm like, guys, listen to me. If you can't handle the amount of like intense shit I'm going to have going on timelines, that's fine because I worked in event planning and sports for so long, guys. Like I know I want this is a fucking production. Mm-hmm. This is not a wedding. It was a production. Right. Like it is We're a, a choreographed routine for six hours yes, straight. Scripted. Okay. All right. Movie set. A movie set. Everyone get your scripts out. And that was literally <laughs> what it was. So I was telling her, I was like, final dance of the night. We had a fireworks show towards the beginning, like middle of the reception because it was, it was the 4th, 4th of July. July. Then I wanted to have a second set of fireworks. <laughs> <show>. <laughs> Second set of fireworks show that went on 
at the specific spot in this song. And every song in my wedding was a song from a romantic comedy that everyone knows and loves, that everyone like can feel something about. Like that's what I want. I wanted it to be an experience for everyone. We're at the final dance. We did Kiss Me. I, I told her, I was like, at this spot in the song, this is where you press the button to alert the people at the top to turn on the fucking fireworks at that fucking second. I knew Xandra had it in the bag. Guys, I'm being spun around at this point because I had it to where Logan, like nothing was choreographed in that dance except for this spin. I look at her, I give her the look. She's already pressing the button. He picks me up, spin, fireworks over the poo, poo, poo. Everyone turns Disney. around looking. They're like, oh my God. Yes. Yep. Wait, Lean me uh, whatever like that's exactly where it was and it was so fucking iconic I tell everyone that yes your first dance oh that's so sweet formalities no add a last dance make it so memorable I made everyone watch you maybe don't have I should to make my watch. first dance my last dance mm, yeah treat it like that yeah you can do that see like that's what I, I just wanted the song that was going to mean more to me to be at the end of the night to close it out well happy anniversary what is it three Thank years you. this is four our no. third year married our eighth year together. together yeah and the way me and logan like actually started talking was so weird but we're not gonna get into that today that's a pipe and on goss type of situation yeah okay even though you are getting a patreon which is probably why i'm rambling yeah so that's what we meant yes. to get here today yes, we're back now and sorry no yeah um but anyway so today you're going because taylor has been on vacation, living her best life, and because it's her anniversary week and her plus Logan the holiday. has something, plus the holiday, we are giving you a glimpse of what one of like our favorite Patreon. Patreon apps. Yes. And it is a little different for our Patreoners, so don't be too mad at hang us. Hang out. Just, you just want to hear us again. Come on. I mean, just swear <laughs> to God that you want to hear it again. Just say you want to hear it Just admit it. Because we They're really good stories, so you may pick up on things that you didn't pick up on the first yeah. time you heard it. So just tune in. And these were two of our most recent favorite cases we covered on Patreon. Yeah. So that's why we wanted to give them to you guys. And it just like helped us out so much. So thank you guys for being understanding just in advance. Don't be misunderstanding. Because don't I'm, hate us. I'm going to have to ground you at that point. Yeah. Don't, do that don't be me. misunderstanding because uh, Taylor's been working her dick off. All right. <laughs> Morgan said, let me see that notebook. And she was like, oh, my God, <laughs> the list. I'm over it. But that is the neatest, most organized list I've ever seen of you. Normally, your notes are trick and scratch. Literally, so, like, you have been on your game. That's why I'm proud of you for the month game. of June. Oh, thank you. It's just like a whole new bitch. It's a brand whole new, bitch. new bitch. Ready to go to Italy. But all righty, here we go. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get Creepy. Okay, I know we talked for a really long time, but I just have like one thing to say that I'm a little nervous about going to Italy. Okay. It's not the travel. Like you'd think it would be the travel. It's not the travel. It's actually my underarms. Oh. And I know this is something you can totally relate to. Absolutely. I, I don't feel like this is something that we talk about enough on the podcast. Yeah. So like a few years ago, I want to say six years now, I got for my high school graduation present six rounds of laser hair removal. <sighs> 
And Chiller. it changed my life because up until that point, I have such dark hair and I'm my underarms are so sensitive to razors. Me so too. I'd break out. I would get ingrowns all the time. And it just looks like my underarms are stained dark because of how bad it reacts to the razor. It just changed my life. Like I love it so much. But knowing how thick and dark my hair is, I knew it wasn't going to be a forever thing. Yeah. About last Christmas, I started talking to Morgan about how I wanted to get that for her for Christmas. <laughs> And I don't have to anymore because we have partnered with Ideal Image for today's episode. And we are so and excited. I feel the same exact way yeah. about my underarms for mm -hmm. mostly my underarms, but definitely my legs and some other areas that I would Bikini like to get line. zapped off for sure. <laughs> 100%. But my arms, like I find myself all the time constantly wearing something with sleeves mm -hmm. or never a tank top because never putting my arms up in I'm pictures. so self-conscious about my underarms and the hair because they're thick they're coarse they're dark mm -hmm. and even when I do feel like I shave them down to the root like it's it's not it's and not waxing, it's still stubble and waxing doesn't even help half the time so I'm glad that I get to go to ideal image and I get to gain some confidence back and wear some tanks because it's 90 degrees outside because it's so hot outside <laughs> I'm and tired of wearing sleeves that's when it's the worst too because you don't want to raise her too many times but I'm just so excited with the promise of knowing a second I get back I am going to ideal image I'm to so get my treatment <laughs> laser hair removal will permanently reduce that unwanted hair that me and Taylor both do not want for good with laser hair removal. And it zaps the hair follicles. Can I, did I say that right? Follicles? I, guys, I try my best every single time right at the root. You can see and feel the results right away. And I'm not even lying. It feels so good, so freeing, so nice. So vibey. So have your hot girl summer with Taylor and I. Ditch the razor for the laser. You'll never have to take a packet for trips, take it to Italy. And not to mention how absolutely convenient it is. It's just one less thing that I have to do in the shower. And, and that list goes on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> Ideal Image has over 20 million successful treatments along with exclusive technology that's able to treat all skin types and tones. Ideal Image is North America's number one aesthetic brand who deliver affordable and effective aesthetic treatments through the most accessible network of over 800 licensed medical professionals. And Ideal Image is celebrating 20 years of real results with throwback pricing. Get your free personalized plan. Contact Ideal Image today. Go to idealimage.com slash creeps and crimes. That's www.idealimage.com slash C-R-E-E-P-S-A-N-D-C-R-I-M-E-S. -E 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 Ditch the razor, zap it away, and have a confident and convenient hot girl summer. Today, I'm going to be covering something called third man syndrome. So I want you to imagine being, don't actually imagine being this, okay. but imagine being in the middle of a life-threatening situation or near-death experience only to feel the reassuring presence of this unseen friend guiding and protecting you. This phenomenon is known as the third man syndrome. The first documented case goes back to 1916 when Sir Ernest Shackleton or Shackleton and his crew found themselves stranded on the good old icy continent. He and his crew embarked on a wild journey across the entire Antarctic on ship. But due to the unknown conditions at the time, I don't know why they thought this was a good idea. The ship that was carrying the members, which was called the Endurance, got mm -hmm. stuck in the ice. Oh, the entire crew sat on the ship for almost an entire month before realizing that they were probably stuck there until spring, until it started to warm up. Fuck that. So on February 24th, a Mubby Day, Sir Shackleton ordered the abandonment of the ship. 
For the next two months, he and his party trekked across the Antarctic in little tiny rowboats, stopping <sighs> on a, the first one, a large flat iceberg. So like a giant sheet of ice. Right hoping that it would drift them closer to the nearest island of land that they could remember, which was called Paulette Island. But uh -uh. the island that they were trying to reach was 250 miles away. And this iceberg was not drifting fast enough. They get on their rowboats. They find another sheet of ice that seems to be a little more flown with the current. And they set up camp on this one, hoping that it's going to drift them closer to that safe landing of Paulette Island. And it had. It drifted them within 60 miles of their destination. Oh, wow. However, they got stuck at the stopping point. They were separated from the island by what he described as like impassable ice. So just a bunch of sheets of ice just broken up. Like right. it, they couldn't get like to it. Like you have no idea what secure or not to step on. Right. And on April 9th, the sheet of ice that they were camped on where their entire campsite was located split into two. <gasps> and he ordered his crew into their tiny lifeboats and to head to the nearest piece of land that they could find. After five days at sea searching for land, they landed on what is now called Elephant Island. They were 346 miles from where they left their boat, the Endurance. Fuck. Uh, in the sea. Fuck Freezing that. cold. No. In 1913. I, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think I would have been able to do no, that. I, I think I would have just gone down with the ship. I would have probably just ju jumped in with mm. cinder blocks on my feet. Just let it freeze me until yeah. it numbs me and then I just die. Yeah. But Elephant Island was not their destination they were hoping for. It was not a part of any known shipping routes and no one would be able to find them there. So he embarked on one of the most dangerous expeditions, an open boat journey, 720 miles from the island in South Atlanta, or the South Atlantic Ocean, south called South Georgia. And he took five companions with him. Frank Worsley, who was the Endurance's captain, the ship captain, who would be responsible for the navigation. Tom Crean, who had just, quote, begged to go. He just wanted to be there. He was begging Honestly, not to be left on the on Elephant the island. island. Yeah. And then two of their stronger sailors named John Vincent and Timothy McCarthy. And finally, their carpenter, whose last name is McNeish. I couldn't find his first name. And McNeish and Shackleton actually really butted heads when they were stranded on the ice, like their first block of ice. But Shackleton was like, okay, like, you're a carpenter. We're going to need that in case right. something happens to the lifeboats. You know what's up. So like, I'm going to put our differences aside. You need to come with us. Well, yeah. And it's like survival at that point. Right. So they go to embark and he refuses to pack supplies for more than four weeks, knowing that if they did not reach South Georgia within that time, then the boat and its crew would be lost and they have no chance. Yeah. So he was like, don't pack over four weeks. Don't overdo it. They launched on April 24th, 1916. Over the next 15 days, they sailed through the waters at the mercy of all the storms going on at the time and in constant fear of their tiny lifeboat capsizing. Dead ass. On May 8th, thanks to the captain's navigational skills, Worsley, the cliffs of South Georgia, they could see them. Thank God. But hurricane force winds prevented the possibility of landing. So they were forced to ride out the storm offshore. This is also like a very rocky area. And yeah. they were like in constant danger of being just bashed up against the fucking Fuck giant that. iceberg rocks. They survived this. They later learned that that same hurricane had sunk a 500 ton steamer that was bound for South Georgia from Buenos Aires. So sunk, sunk it. That same hurricane that they fucking survived on their lifeboat sunk a 500 ton boat. Shit. On the following day, they were able 
finally to land on the unoccupied southern shore. But the shipping station where they had any chance of being found was on the northern side of the island. A fucking course it is. So after a period of rest and relaxation, rather than risk going to sea again, like to go up around because Mm -hmm. it was so horrific on their tiny fucking boat to reach the north side, Shackleton decided to attempt a land crossing of the island. And this had been done before, Mm -hmm. but by those that were equipped for the weather and the circumstances, and they crossed on skis. Right. These men didn't have skis. No. They only had boots and they pushed screws into them to act as like climbing boots. Mm. Thanks to the idea of Carpenter McNish. So thank God. Thank God McNish is there. We needed someone that was innovative. But this expedition, they left behind McNish, Vincent and McCarthy at the South Landing site. And only Shackleton, Worsley and Crean, who's the guy that begged to go and the captain, trudged through the extremely dangerous mountainous terrain and sub zero temps for the next 36 hours. I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't want to be left behind. I would be like, I have to go. I on have to go because I'm not going to because what's going to happen to me if they don't make it to somebody. I die here. Yeah. But granted, I'm being left with a boat. So right. worse comes to worse. I guess I could try to go around the coast. I could brave it. Yeah. Right. I don't know what I would do. I would just I wouldn't made I wouldn't know I was far. I would have been left on Elephant on, Island. I I'd still would have been on the first sheet of ice <laughs> that got split in two. Yeah. Underneath it. Underneath of it. <laughs> sinking away from the rest of the crew. Yeah. 100%. It took them 36 hours to across and during this sir shackleton felt a presence guiding him making his group of three feel like four and he wrote this in his book called south the endurance expedition he says quote when i look back at those days i have no doubt that providence guided us not only across those snowfields but across the storm white sea that separated elephant island from our landing pace on south georgia i know that during that long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of south georgia it seemed to me often that we were four not three. Shackleton immediately sent a boat to pick up the three men from the other side of South Georgia who were all still alive while he started to organize the rescue of the men on Elephant Island. His first three attempts failed due to sea ice, which blocked the boats from reaching the island. So he appealed to the Chilean government, which offered the use, I guess they were the only like government that had this sort of boat from their navy right and it's called a yelcho and it's like a small like seagoing like tugboat but mm. it's like very strong through ice like i guess it's like it can like tear that shit apart yeah so yelcho which was commanded by captain lewis pardo and the rest of their his crew which was called the british whaler reached elephant island on august 30th 1916 at which point the men had been isolated there for four and a half months all of them survived shut the fuck up everybody fucking survives this story after his book came out and the stories got around of this strange phenomena that he experienced that was referred to as the third man syndrome, more and more people started coming forward, backing his experience. Explorer, explorers, shipwreck survivors, hikers, etc., who all claim to have heard a voice, often sharing information on how they could survive, how they would survive. Wow. And it is fucking insane. So I have a couple examples that I'm going to run through. The second person to speak on it and the first person to summit Mount Everest in 1933 was British explorer Frank Smythe. Along with his climbing party, Frank made the intense journey towards the summit in really poor conditions. And his party was like, fuck that. I'm turning around. The weather's horrible. We can't breathe. Right. It's like, this is impossible, dude. Like, we're done. Like, we're we're done. But <laughs> That's Frank, m- literally me if I ever tried to do Mount Everest. Frank is like, I'm summoning. So yeah, I got to go. 
long live. Yep. Long live Frank. He continued and he was determined to complete the summit, even though eventually he ended up missing it by 304 meters. So just a thousand feet. While he was completely alone, that isn't how he remembered it. In his diary after the attempt, he wrote about this feeling. He said, quote, all the time that I was climbing alone, I had a strong feeling that I was accompanied by a second person. The feeling was so strong that it completely eliminated all loneliness I might otherwise have felt. And at one point, he was so convinced of this like imaginary guide or friend companion that he had tried to share some like cake with it. It's called mint cake. I guess it's like, I don't don't know what it means. Probably like York mint. Yeah. tried to share some cake with it but he turned around he realized that like no one was there like he was absolutely like delusional that a hundred thousand percent someone was on this expedition with him and needed a bite of cake and they needed a bite of cake and there was nobody there so this syndrome phenomenon I want to say I don't like calling it syndrome was first clinically documented in the 1940s and psychologists have tried to guess various triggers or explanations that range from sensory deprivation extreme fatigue boredom to evolutionary adaptation that happens like very quickly like Mm. your body and your brain is trying to adapt extreme set stress moment and they're like we need to give them a friend or they're gonna lose their minds right in 1985 joe simpson made his first ascent of the then unclimbed west face of the peruvian andes with his partner simon yates and i remember learning about the story in psychology Mm -hmm. on the descent joe had broken his right leg in a fall simon attempted to rescue him by roping them together and he would lower joe as far down the mountain as the rope would allow and then he would descend himself and then like so on and so forth like joe would go down he would go down however the weather condition was getting worse and worse and worse and so was visibility and he had unknowingly lowered joe over a cliff edge and of course with a broken leg joe would not be able to climb up the rope and it was impossible for simon to pull him up due to him being literally into a mountain like there was just no possible way so to avoid being pulled off the mountain himself he was forced to cut the rope connected to joe joe fell off the cliff and into like this crevice like down in the bottom Mm -hmm. like a ravine he then crawled his way back to base camp and in his book that he released in 1988 called touching the void he described that it was a voice that had encouraged him and directed him on how to get back. Wow. He had no idea where he was. Right. And yet he's hearing this voice like, you need to go this way. You've got this. Like, mm-hmm. left here, right here, a couple more feet. You're almost there. You know, like, mm-hmm. it was a fucking voice that didn't exist physically that <sighs> led him back to base camp. That story blows my mind because of the, I'm sure you, I feel like we talked about it on the podcast before. What is that called whenever you have to choose between letting someone you love go mm-hmm. or killing both of you? I don't know, but that's like I remember another one of the things like leading up into this the railroad situation where like the you switch the tracks or whatever. What is it? One person on the track that you know you love, mm-hmm. and then five people you have no idea who and they like are. five kids or something like whack as fuck like yeah. That. But Joe like later did an interview and he was like, no, I we're still best buddies. Like I yeah, I would have done the same thing. Yeah, and whenever Simon like got back to camp, like every and even to town, like to home, everyone was like very critical of him. Right. Like, well, how could you do that? Mm-hmm. Like why why did you do that? Mm-hmm. And he was like, what I'm sure they were talking, and Joe was like, dude. I don't give a fuck. Like, I would have done the same thing. Like, you have managed to keep me alive this long. I'm stuck on this mountain. I have a broken fucking leg. Like, I don't remember. Did he did he talk to him or did he not tell him? I don't know. I want to almost say that he didn't tell him. Like, he said that there was an issue 
and then just did it. And like, yeah, it just because it'd be better for him not to brace. Yeah. Which might have ended up saving his life. Exactly. Yeah, you know? I think you're right. Isn't I that think what that it was? Is what and it was. They were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn, I, I forgot yeah. all about that shit. Yeah. Joe said that he would not have survived without these directions and support from mm. his non-existent friend, this voice. That 100%. Was, that you're was talking crawling. to him. Yeah. He then underwent six surgical operations as a result of the leg injuries that he had gotten. And the doctors told him that he would never climb again and that he would have trouble walking for the rest of his life after two years of rehabilitation he returned to mountain climbing and he now shares his story and is a motivational speaker 100 and i remember watching a documentary with joe there yes like, yeah i would have done the same thing like i'm not mad at him yeah so I, like I would like to watch that now yeah me too okay so his his third man to him mm -hmm. to joe he calls it his guardian angel yeah i would too or the next reported story of this phenomenon took place on september 11th 2001 from a group of firefighters trapped in the north tower of the world trade center this group of men reported feeling the presence of a mysterious figure who had led them down the stairs to safety. And one of the firefighters said, quote, he led us right to the stairway and he said, you're going to be okay now. You're going to be all right. And we didn't know who he was, but he was an angel to us. And they weren't the only ones who experienced a guardian angel that day. A man named Ron DeFrancesco, I think mm -hmm. it is, worked in the World Trade Center during the terrorist attacks on September 11th. He was on the 84th floor of the South Tower when the second plane hit. And in a panic, he frantically tried to make his way to the stairs, but the fire and smoke was just so intense that he ended up just lying down on the ground. Yeah. He then recalls that a hand reached out to him and he grabbed it. And that person led him all the way down those stairs to the exit and out of the building but he was the very last person to exit the building before it fell and there was no one with him. He was only one of four people to escape from above the 81st floor. I literally have chills all over my mind. Yeah. It makes me want to cry. Like, he lived for a reason. You know, when there's so many people in a situation like that, like how do the guardian angels pick and choose? Pick and choose? I guess it's just like I think it's just your timeline. You know, yeah. who's versus I think who's it's, not. Yeah, your soul contract. And I mean, they... Maybe he was supposed to be God sick that knows, day. God knows like what know? day we are going yeah. to die. And just like how he knows when we're coming. You're in the wrong, like maybe he was, exactly. He mm. was supposed to be sick that day. And, and he, he like, showed up. Right. Maybe he was supposed to be in a car accident that didn't end up happening because yeah. of a series of events or something. Like he was not supposed to be there that day, mm -hmm. clearly. Yeah. Or maybe he um, was and he was supposed to be the person that talked about it. Yeah. I mean, they're physically that everyone saw there was no one who ever helped Ron and no one ever led him to safety because no one else was there. It was it an was just angel. Him. Yeah, it was a guard. It was a third man. Wow. And there's more. Many survivors report an unknown presence during the attack on 9-11. Like a lot of people talk mm -hmm. about it. The biggest pattern that we see with third man syndrome is adrenaline, extreme stress, and near death. An example of this is James Savigny. Savini, and he was 28 when he and his friend Richard Whitmire set out to climb Delta Forum, which is a mountain in the Canadian Rockies. They were roped together and they were using these big ice picks to, quote, traverse an ice gully. I don't know what that what is. I couldn't imagine what I think it's just like you ice stick picks. it in and yeah, you just like use it to yeah, get up, getting up yeah. the mountain because it's all fucking ice. And that is when an avalanche of snow and ice came crashing down onto them. James was knocked unconscious almost immediately and Richard could have escaped the avalanche according to James if the rope 
wasn't keeping them together. An hour later, James woke up to a broken back, ribs, scapula, arm, and nose, along with torn ligaments on both knees and several internal and external wounds. He was dazed. He didn't know what was going on. He couldn't remember what happened. He had amnesia, basically. And that's when he found his friend, his partner, Richard, who was lying dead next to him on the ground. He laid next to his friend and he was just waiting for death to to take him as well. Like he wanted to go with him. After about a half an hour, he felt this person, this presence approach him and tell him to get up, keep going. And it even began giving him tips on how to survive with the advice from this spirit or presence person being he miraculously almost made it back to his campsite and he stopped just a little bit short due to exhaustion. He said, it was that moment that I stopped. I knew that that being, that apparition had left me and this unsettling sense of like loneliness and like realization overpowered him and Mm. he was like, exhausted like the only way that he was able to get back there with all of those injuries was because someone was guiding him and getting him back there like got into i literally think whatever these are like they're there they take your pain away Mm -hmm. for the that time being like take it all in on themselves they're an epidural yeah yeah and just watch you and just like walk you through it when your brain can't do it yeah a group of skiers had found him like within a short few minutes of going down their mountain and they called 911. He was picked up by a helicopter and sent to a hospital. My last example was in 2013. There was a Nigerian cook working on his ship. His name was Harrison O'Keen, and he was stuck in the middle of the ocean when the ship capsized off the coast of Nigeria. He managed to survive for three days in an air pocket with the ship submerged underwater. An air pocket. During this time, he reported feeling the presence of another person sitting there with him, helped him to stay calm and survive until he was rescued. Can you like run out of air in an air pocket? No, really, though. Like, I mean, but these people are saying like these guys are giving them or these beings are giving them tips. Like they're probably like slow, deep breaths, you know, like don't be panicking because you're going to suck up all the oxygen. How long did he survive in the air pocket? Three days. Three days. Yeah. Imagine how many breaths. I actually also wa- remember watching us on like Discovery Channel or History Channel or something. And I remember them like drawing the like depiction of like how he fit in there and how much air. I remember all of these stories. Was he submerged in the water himself and was just Halfway. breathing? It was like right. chest up. Like he was like in his knees, like up in a corner of something. Yeah. Fuck. These stories are wild. Just waiting. I know, dude. I I love slash hate. Like, I literally beat the odds of death stories because they're just so fucking mind-blowing. Yeah. Mind-blowing. So many theories have been proposed to try to explain third-man phenomenon or third-man syndrome, but there is no single explanation that can be proven definitively. Each one will provide some insight into ways that how our brains work Mm -hmm. under this extreme stress, but there's really no way to actually say study this right. or figure it out. One theory suggests that the third man syndrome is a form of hallucination. So when the brain is under extreme stress, it may create this sense of presence as like a coping mechanism. And this presence can take on different forms depending on that individual, their cultural background, their personal beliefs, religious beliefs. Like for example, like a Christian may feel the presence of an angel while a Muslim may see the presence of Allah. Right. You know, so like it just depends on who it is. And maybe wow. if you're not religious, you see your, your mother, mom, yeah. your, yeah, your sibling, your friend. Or just a thing. 
a thing. Yeah. yeah. Or just, and a lot of people say that like, some of our stories, like it was just a presence. Like it right. wasn't even like they saw anything. Yeah. They could just, they, someone was talking to them. No one was there. Another theory proposes that the third man syndrome is a result of the brain's natural response to danger. So when you're faced with a life-threatening situation, the brain will release chemicals that heighten our senses and increase our awareness of our surroundings. And this heightened state of awareness can create the feeling that someone else is with us even when we are alone. Yeah, okay. And it opens up your third eye enough that you can literally See, talk to a spirit. Yeah. I have my own theory, but some also, of course, we're going to talk about this, is that third man syndrome may be linked to spiritual or paranormal experiences. Since so many people who report feeling the presence describe it as comforting or protective, maybe related to guardian angels or other supernatural beings or spirit guides or soul guides, whatever you, whatever you would want to call it. But again, there is hardly any sort of scientific evidence to prove whatever it is, because this is just something that is extremely difficult to it's study. Unexplainable. It's, in, it's impossible to study mm -hmm. it's you can't recreate scenarios like this in a lab while doing brain mapping or right. whatever you want to do to study how the brain is functioning like there's just no fucking way to ever understand this and that's ethical yeah exactly ethical that's a good word to use there mm -hmm. um, but personally this is my theory i think that it has something to do with mother nature and I think that because almost every event aside from 9-11 um, and the examples that I talked about, these people are alone, isolated and in need of this motivator companion. And not that the victims of 9-11 didn't need that. I'm just here. That's out. a completely different situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so these people, they're alone, they're isolated, they're in need of a motivator, a friend, a companion or just help in general. But most are in these positions because of their love of exploration and nature and they're alone out there in the wilderness. And I think it's like earth spirit guides. Like mm. it's like people Mother like that nature. worshiped yeah. and I just- Looked for as guides. Looked for as guides. I think it's earth spirit guides that come to aid those who appreciate, take care of the earth, love the earth, want to explore their home and treat it well. And, or I also do think it's very probable that it's that person's guardian angel spirit guide or- Maybe our brain really can create this companion in extreme stress environments to help prevent itself from shutting down. But I really like my mother nature. Idea. I like the mother like nature earth one. Spirit, earth spirit guides. Yeah. I think if it's not if it's not something like that, I think it would be your higher self. Yeah. Because like your when your brain is like an override like that, you know, like you can't even trust your intuition. Right. So it's kind of like your higher self has to physically come fucking talk to you. Yeah. Because your brain is blocking it so fucking hard just to because it's in panic mode. Mm -hmm. So that's like the only other thing I think it could be unless it was truly like a guardian angel, which again, I think the or nature there, spirit guides. Another part of me was thinking like think of Loki, but not in a scientific mm. Marvel way. Yeah. But if there were like timekeepers or timelines. Mm -hmm. And when you like a soul contract, yep. when you aren't supposed to die, I'm not saying that Loki is coming and giving you your, his hand, right. but I'm saying like maybe there is some sort of, or maybe you in another universe is getting through it. So mm -hmm. you're walking yourself in another reality. Right. And it's just it. like not your time. And if right. you do go, you, you are fucking up the timeline and you shouldn't be going right there. And then it will lead to a catastrophe. And I don't know. It's My fucking, fucking spirit guide would be pissed at me. Because I would be like, I am done. No, your spirit guide would be like, that's it. I'm bringing the big dog. Next thing you know, Susan's walking towards you. Oh, my God. I'm like, hey, sorry. I'll get She's up. like, get up Get the now. fuck up Let's right go. now, bitch. We got to go. Yeah. Like, shit, okay. <laughs> but that's all I have. That is what third man syndrome <laughs> is. And it's also called something else. It's called third man. Yours would be me. 
I, I would be the reinforcement. I would be like, please don't leave me. Nope. Um, <laughs> me and Ollie. <laughs> third man syndrome, but it's also called third man factor. Well, that's really interesting. I really like that one. Yeah, I thought it was a nice kind of little like break for us. Yeah. Probably would have been good for a regular app for our regular people to hear a nice little bro- break. But yeah, we'll see. We'll think about it. Because technically we could. The case I have for you guys today is sometimes called the Florida machete murder. I don't like that name in my opinion because it like really doesn't. It's just beside itself. Either way, let's just get into the case. Athalia Ponzel Lindsley was born on July 25th, 1917 in Toledo, Ohio to a very, very wealthy family. Well, yeah, the Lindsley family, they have their own private school. They do? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, the Lindsley School. Oh, well, then you're going to love this. I think it's an academy. I wonder if that's that family. Well, that's not her maiden name. There's Ponzel. That's her maiden name. Okay. So then the husband. So her family was really rich. Yeah, her family was also really rich. Yeah, the name Lindsley is very rich in West Virginia, Ohio. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Though she was born in Toledo, Ohio, she was raised on the Isle of Pines in the Caribbean, and that island is owned by Cuba. But she was not your regular island girl. Miss Girl was an it girl. She spent 20 years of her life living in New York, working as a Broadway dancer a model, and the hostess on the TV game show, Winner Takes All. And if you think Miss It Girl couldn't get any more iconic, she dated Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., Oh my God. The oldest Kennedy brother. So that's how like much of an it girl this woman was. It was never really confirmed if they were actually engaged. It was mainly rumored. But when Kennedy died in active duty in World War II, she never once called him or referred to him as her fiance. Always said boyfriend. Okay. So after this, she went on to live in St. Augustine, Florida, where she worked as a real estate agent, an author, a political activist, an animal activist, an inventor, and still modeled a little bit on the side. Slay, bitch. Slay. But her reputation was not what you would typically hear about a woman with these types of jobs or popularity. And it low-key makes me love her more. The Orlando Centennial referred to her as, quote, a sharp-tongued, aggressive woman who would not have won a popularity contest. End quote. Damn. Either bitch. I love that for her. (laughs) Me too. Which is probably why in 1970, when she ran for Florida legislature, she lost. In September of 1973, at 56 years old, Athalia married St. Augustine's former mayor turned extremely successful real estate agent, James Jinx is like what everyone called him, Lindsley. Though they were very happily married, the two kept their separate homes and just spent the night with each other, alternating homes depending on their schedule. Jinx had two uh, homes of his own, though, and alternated between the two of those. The first one that he mainly stayed in was the historical Lindsley House at 214 St. George Street, and periodically he would stay at his little holiday home on Anastasia, Anastasia Island, I don't know how they pronounce it, that sat on Lou Boulevard. Now, Athalia's home, which was her pride and joy, sat at 124 Marine Street, just off of the Matsanza. 
Matanzas River. Okay, they were living well. But by January of 1974, after being married for four months, Athalia decided that she wanted to put her home on the market. She loved her home, but one, it just made no sense for them to have three fucking houses, just two blocks apart from each other, no joke. Then number two, in my opinion, I think they were like, fuck that, we're not getting rid of the beach house, so it's yours. You know what I mean? And his home is literally like the historical Lindsley home, so can't can't get get rid rid of that. that. Then number three, she fucking hated her neighbor. Fucking hated her neighbor. So I think it just like came to a head and she was like, fine, I'll put it on the fucking market because I can't stand this motherfucker. However, she wanted to stay in the home for as long as she had it. So she stayed in it until that thing sold. She just didn't want to leave it unoccupied and like she wanted to enjoy every second she had in it. On January 25th, 3rd, 1974, either between 5.45 p.m. or 6 p.m. and 6.15 p.m. So it was either like 5.45 to 6.15 or 6 to 6.15. Sources differ on what timeline this is. Athalia went outside her front door to take Clementine, her pet Blue Jay, on a walk. And this is something she did every single night. She would take a pet on a walk after dinner. When she stepped out on her front porch with Clementine, she came face to face with a man carrying a machete. Fuck that. Before she could even react, the man began attacking her, striking her nine times, swinging as hard as he could with the machete on her arm, on her hand, on her head. Oh my God. It was so brutal that she was nearly decapitated and one of her fingers was cut off in the struggle. But before the attack was over, Athalia's 18-year-old neighbor, Locke McCormick, walked outside of his home to see like what the fuck was going on because it was loud, clearly. And he witnessed the man attacking Athalia and screams for his family inside to come out because, quote, Mr. Stanford is hitting Miss Ponzel, which is her maiden name. End quote. Athalia's attacker then fled, but Locke describes her attacker as a middle-aged white man that was wearing a white button-down dress shirt, so like a collared shirt, and a pair of dark dress pants, who he thought was their other neighbor, Alan Griffin Stanford Jr. And this is the neighbor that Athalia fucking hated. They had an ongoing feud for months at this point because of her six rescue dogs, which we're going to come back to. So once the attacker fled, and by fled, I mean casually walked across the yard and down the street, the McCormicks ran over to Athalia and they found her lying in a pool of her own blood and called police. When first responders arrived, Athalia was pronounced dead. My God. That's how brutal this attack was. Nine swings and she's dead. Investigators found the only thing missing or off-putting about Athalia's home was her blue jay Clementine. And Clementine's cage had been like crushed. It was all on the front porch, so I don't know if it just got hit in the swings or if it was targeted. They weren't really sure, but other than that, it seemed that Athalia was truly the only target of this attack. Like, why would someone come and machete another person for a fucking bird? Right. It wasn't the bird. It wasn't the home. It wasn't the money. Like, it was just Athalia that was attacked. In the front yard of Athalia's home, there was this trick of blood in the grass that led all the way around the south side of her house. But really, that was it. Like, truly, that is all that was at the scene. And police officers on the scene ordered that the first responders that came with a fire truck hose the blood off the porch. Oh, did they? Yeah. Once the body was removed, they first day on the job, hose it down. So we're just going to wash away all the crime scene evidence and everything about it. Cool. 
What the little fuck? Was it bro? their first day on the job? For yeah, one hundred percent. Well, because of this, they literally had no fucking leads. Clearly, they had to ask the public for tips. So the sheriff offered a five hundred dollar reward for any information that would help this case. Specifically, they were searching for a murder weapon, the machete. Well, less than a month later, on February seventeenth, a local mechanic named Dewey Lee was searching around with like this search crew in the marshes that sat one mile behind. Behind Athalia's home and he found a package and in this package was a bloody white button-down collared shirt dark colored dress pants that were bloodied a pair of shoes that had blood spatter on them a watch with blood on it and a fucking machete <laughs> now side note I do want to like put this in because like in my opinion if someone was like someone got mach- like beaten with a fucking machete I would be like what the fuck but back then like it was really common not to be chopped up with a machete, but every single household of Florida residents, specifically in the state of Florida, had at least two machetes for like getting rid of weeds and shit. Yeah. And, you know, I have to ask this. OK, what what year was this? 1974. Thank you. 1974. It was around this exact same time that they discovered this. So like early February that Athalia's friend, like one of her best friends and neighbor, Francis Bemis, who was a 70 year old retired department store, public relations executive, fashion consultant and a collaborating author who was actually working on a book. As soon as Athalia died, she started writing a book about Athalia's life and her death and was like digging into her death. Really weird. That's interesting. Right. So either way, Frances tells her friend a secret. But I also feel like if that was me, like you would also be like digging into my death. Right. But I wouldn't be like writing a book about it immediately. You're right. You know, like I wouldn't be, I would be investigating. You would be, you would be like note taking though, timelining. Yeah. Yeah, I would. But I wouldn't be like, let me get this in a book right now. Let me write that real quick. Right. Hold on one second. W on me. Right. <laughs> ring, ring. Literally called. Hi. Can I get a book uh, agent, please? Thank you. Francis told her friend that she knew something about Athalia's murder that no one else knew and she couldn't say. She wanted to save it for her book. Oh, okay. Now, this is odd because your neighbor and your friend was just murdered a month before. And right after she's killed, you want to start writing a book about her. And now you know something like you found something and you're not telling police you because tell you want to save it for your book. Well, this was not the first weird thing that Francis had done after Athalia was killed. She low-key, high-key got a little victim blamey with Athalia in a fucking newspaper interview. And this is what she said, quote, I think St. Augustine is the safest place I have ever lived. I go out walking at night every night and I will continue to do so. I went out walking the very same night just hours after her murder took place, end quote. Okay. What the fuck? Okay. So we can see this from two points of view. All right. The first is that Francis is a bad guy. She's fucking sauce. Which would be, you clearly know who did this, Francis, and you feel safe because you know that person's not going to come after you. So great. Can you say that again for the fucking record? Right. Or number two, we could think of Francis as being not a bad guy, but definitely not a good guy, where she maybe knew that Athalia was in on some shady shit or like uncovered some shady shit. And that was the reason that she was murdered. But either way, I feel like anyone in their right fucking mind would be freaking out out at the fact that someone in their neighborhood just got just literally got murdered hacked to death no yeah way. and also maybe she was just like much less a friend 
Right, exactly. Unless she was like such a bad friend. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm so safe here. Like, everything's I'm fine. fine. Like, like, no one's going to come after me. If I were her, like, delusional my in, friend in the life. slash my neighbor, who is also semi close in age, they're best friends, they're neighbors, and they've worked together for a really long time. If someone gets murdered in my neighborhood, even if I didn't fucking know them, I'm going to be shitting my pants saying 100% I'm not going out on a walk because there's a machete yielding psychopath out there casually running around killing people in dress clothes right unless of course in broad daylight unless of course you know that that wasn't the case right unless you know that's not the case but Miss Francis kept her promise she continued going on her nightly walks no matter what, which is exactly what she was doing on the night of November 3rd, 1974, just nine months after Athalia's murder. Except for this would be her last night walk ever because the next morning when her neighbor went to walk his dog, he came across Francis's body in a vacant lot at the corner of Bridge and Marine Street, just down the street from their home. Francis was partially nude, like most of her clothing had been torn off in a struggle or forcefully removed. And as for her cause of death it was clear that she had been beaten to death with a stone block which left her skull completely crushed oh my that was a silencer right but they also found that her body had been partially burned as if the killer tried to burn her to destroy evidence and destroy her remains but it, like gave up what the fuck what the fuck because of that the burning they were not able to confirm or deny if she had been a victim of a sexually motivated crime but an autopsy revealed that there were no signs that she had been sexually assaulted at all so they truly do think that they were maybe taking the clothes off to try and burn her or like mm-hmm. create start the fire but clearly this is super odd Athalia gets murdered. Francis goes public with her middle finger up to Athelia's attacker. She starts writing a book about Athelia's life and death and then says that she knows something about Athelia's murder but she wants to keep it for her book and then she gets murdered herself. Too many coincidences to not be sus. Right. Well, the police chief did not think so. No. He goes public and he's like, no, nope, there's no connection connected. between these. They're oh my not. God. It just so happens that neighbor's friend's Women get murdered on their street within nine months of each other, and it's a complete coincidence. Idiot. Idiot. Well, Alan Griffin Stanford Jr., who was the neighbor that Locke McCormick told his mother was attacking Athalia and the same neighbor that had this ongoing drama with Athalia about her dogs, was indicted on a murder charge but only for Athalia's murder, not for Francis's. Stanford pled innocent and was brought to trial. The primary reason that Allen was looked at as the main suspect and indicted was because of that report from Locke McCormick and the fact that the bloody trail through the yard that the person had taken literally led to his back door. Yeah, make that make sense. Right. The prosecution claimed that Stanford and Athalia's month, months, not month, months, long feud had come to a head that day and in the heat of it he went home grabbed his machete and then came back and attacked her and like i said this was all because athalia loved animals and had all these dogs and would take in strays to foster before finding them a home mainly dogs but sometimes cats birds and even a goat at one point like she this girl loved animals let's just say how it is her louse Uh was probably loud as fuck In fact, Stanford was not the only one that had filed a public noise complaint on Athalia. The McCormicks had also filed one in 1972, for which Athalia was fined $50 for, quote, disturbing the peace. The McCormicks pretty much left it at that, though, whereas this standoff with the Stanfords continued on and on and on and escalated. And this is crazy, the drama that they went through. Oh, my God. 
God. So one day after like an argument or they, he did something fucking sideways, Athelia goes out to her yard and she trims every tree, every bush, every flower, every weed that crosses her property line and like butchered those fuckers. Oh my God. Like made them look like shit purposefully and then she goes to the corner of the stanford's driveway which at that point was the city property and planted a bunch of bamboo which is an invasive species like you can't fucking get rid of bamboo she then calls and reports it that they had untamed bamboo growing on their lawn calls the city the city comes and they find the stanford's and then they make them pay to have it removed Oh my God. Yeah, like petty ass HOA shit. Like wild as fuck. Like this is crazy. But at the time, Alan Stamford was the manager of St. John's County, which is the chair for St. Augustine City. Like that's their county that they were in. And that was the same position that Athalia had ran for in 1970. Athalia then would go to the city commission meetings and complain, claiming that Stanford was not qualified for his job not once not twice four fucking times bro oh my four God. times during these claims she hated this man yeah during these meetings that she would go and complain to she made several claims one that he wasn't maintaining the streets properly that's a little karen nathalia but okay if you just in, hate him in that the corner much of his yard. i love re- revenge so. he's not maintaining the corner of his yard right either. bro is planting invasive species like bamboo on city property. So immediately he needs to be taken off. But then she claimed that he had placed sugar in her Cadillac's gas tank. Ooh. And that on the night of October 9th, 1973, just five months prior to her murder, she saw this happening and they got in an argument. And in this argument, Alan Stanford threatened to kill her and she filed a formal report of this. Okay. Right. Well, because of all of these complaints. So like she walked out on him pouring gas in. Pouring sugar into her uh, gas yeah, tank. Yeah, sure, sure. Right. Because of all of these complaints from Athalia on January 23rd, 1974, just hours before she was murdered, the Florida Department of Professional and Occupational Regulations came to the Stanford House and office. The reports for this visit claim that they had opened up an investigation into Allen to see if he was in violation of the Florida state statutes. Wow. Right. So let's go back to the bloody clothes and the machete found in the marshes by mechanic Dewey Lee. Well, because that box had been submerged in salt water for a long time, probably over a month of this or a month at this point, the blood was really contaminated. So was any other forensic evidence that you would be able to get and test from the clothes or the box or the weapon. So they could not say for sure that the blood on these clothing pieces belonged to Athalia. But a forensic expert was brought in to examine the clothes and found a laundry like dry cleaning mark on the shirt that had Alan Stanford's name on it. However, because the markings were so faint and could only be seen with a like by studying it, not with your naked eye, it was determined to be unreliable. Let me guess by the same guy that was like, no connection, no connection. Wash the blood off. Probably. Of course, though, that was only talking about the clothing. What about the watch that was in there? Investigators took this watch to local jewelers and had them run the serial number to see who it belonged to. And guess who it came back as belonging to? Mm. Alan Stanford. 
Well, don't worry, though, because Alan had a story for this one. Oh, okay. Don't fucking worry. He said, after Athalia was murdered, he was, like, looking around his house because he was worried, like, did someone come in my house? And uh, he learned during that that his watch was missing. It had been stolen. He got robbed. He had no fucking And idea. let me guess, the police were like, he's right. He's no right. No connection. <laughs> yeah, bro, okay. When he was initially indicted, his friends and church family in the, like, community, because he was really loved, like, you he's the manager of the county. They raised $20,000 for his bail, got him out. Wow. And then they raised an additional $250,000 to cover his entire like defense team. What? Yeah. That is just fucking worth $1.3 million today, by the way. Wow. You want to literally shit your fucking pants. So also his bail played a really large role in this case, though. It's like really important in the trial, at least, because at the time Francis was murdered, he was out on bail. But I don't know why that would matter, though, because there's no connection. Uh, there's no connection right? right. There's no. These are unrelated. Just two older women being brutally beaten to death in the same neighborhood on their nightly walks. Well, that shit paid off all that money because after two hours of deliberation, the jury acquitted him because there was not enough evidence proving that he had actually been the one that murdered Athalia and wasn't a victim himself. Obviously, because the police washed away all of the fucking evidence at right. the crime scene. My guy was mysteriously robbed and he had no idea. Like, clearly, that's what happened. Yeah. This became a huge topic in the crime because many believe that the police botched the investigation on purpose and tampered with evidence intentionally to cover up the crime. Oh, shit. There it is. Knowing the entire time that it was not Stanford that had done this, but instead they pursued him as a suspect, taking it all the way to trial just to really, like, secure their cover up. And that is exactly what Stanford's attorneys used in their defense, claiming that there was evidence that proved that the sheriff that was working the case, the mechanic, Dewey Lee, that had found the box in the marsh, and James Lindsley, Athalia's husband, had worked together to frame Stanford. Now, to the public, this was the only thing that made sense in the rumor mill, especially because these cases remain unsolved to this day. What? Both hers and Francis's. But why would police do this? Like, who could be so fucking powerful to get police to cover this up for them? Why did this person want Athalia dead? And if this was all the case, like, why murder Francis? What did Francis know? Yeah. So now enter Jinx for theory number two. What I just gave you is theory number one. Okay. So we're moving on to theory number two. Do we ever get a hold of Francis's book? I need that answer. I don't believe so. But there is a book that was written and it was using the materials that she had gathered. Okay. So that's interesting. Theory number two is that James Jinx Lindsley wanted his new wife dead. In the town, James was known as this easygoing, well-respected, and very loved man in St. Augustine. I mean, fuck, guys. He literally served two terms as the mayor. Two yeah. Two terms as the mayor. And like I said earlier, he then became a real estate agent that everyone knew and loved. Like, everyone wanted to do business with him. And they gave him tons and tons and tons of business. So naturally, when his wife gets murdered, everyone starts asking questions like, why? Why didn't you guys live together? Like, that's really weird. Why was it taking you both real estate agents so long to sell her house? Were you guys actually happy in your marriage? Like, what's going on? Well, he always claimed, hand on the Bible, that the reason that they lived separately was because they were two very passionate and independent real estate agents and people. Plus, when you're older and you get married, like, you have years and years and years of your own shit that you've collected in your own home. So, why would we rush? Yes, we're happy, but why would we rush to move in together? Okay, fair. But Athalia's sister said the very fucking opposite of what James is saying. And the queen kept the receipt. 
to Hell prove it. yeah. There was a letter that Athalia had written to her sister just months or weeks before, probably weeks before Athalia's death, where Athalia wrote, quote, Jimmy, who was what she called James slash Jinx, is a complete leech and a complete liar, end quote. Shit. And allegedly, she had changed all of the locks on her home just like a few days prior to her murder. So that's enough for me to think that they're not doing so hot right. in their relationship, which was semi-widely known. Right. And why point. would sis lie? Right. Why would her sister literally be like, I have this? Yeah. You know? And this is like semi-widely known at this point, or at least rumored at this time, because the town's hot goss was all about James and Athalia saying that they were actually separated. Mm. Yeah. And town goss is usually right. Yeah, she's normally right. James told many people that he was angry about these rumors going around. Like, why do there have to be so many? Like, why can't you just leave it alone? Well, because your wife just got fucking murdered. That's right. why. You should be glad that people and are wanting her And you're pretty in your own house. Exactly. But what didn't really help James was the fact that during Stanford's trial, he testified in fucking court in front of God and everybody that he owned a machete that looked exactly like the one that was used to kill his wife saying that he used it to clean up properties when he was looking for his clients as an agent, which is why he always kept it in the back of his car. So after Athalia was murdered to clear his name before it even got there, he claims that he handed his machete over to police and he hadn't got it back at this point yet. Then during his testimony, they showed him the machete that was found in the marshes behind Athalia's home and asked if he recognized it as his. And he said, no, nah, to me, all machetes look the same. And they're like, really? That's interesting because yours has like markings on it and you know, like really expensive and all that things. But there was another thing that stood out about James during the trial. So he's on the stand, right? And we know that everyone in the town is looking at James as the primary suspect, a.k.a. the defense for Stanford is going to be pushing this narrative, too, because if that's in the back of everyone's mind, then you can sway the jury. Well, they ask him to walk them through his day. Because supposedly the reason why police were able to clear him as a suspect was due to his alibi. So James starts walking them through his day on the stand, giving them this ironclad alibi to the court that had cleared his name the first time. Worked with police. Like, why wouldn't it work now? But this backfires because there was a large gap of time. It's either 15 to 30 minutes worth of time that James claimed he was driving home alone after leaving the grocery store with Athalia. They drove separately, allegedly. She drove home and he drove to his home, meaning no one can confirm this alibi or deny it. Well, according to the reports and the writings about this, that missing time was the exact time frame in which Athalia was fucking murdered. Oh, my God. Further supporting the theory that James had killed his wife and police were covering for him is that those who believe James is guilty theorize that whatever Athalia was talking about in that letter to her sister was something that James didn't want her or anyone else to know. Like maybe the fact he had no money or had blown all his money. Shit. Possibly. And in order to keep her from divorcing him, which she would take probably fucking everything. I don't know. And she would have to expose him as being like someone who can't keep up with money or else he would take her money. Right. It would be bad. It would be public. And all this information would go everywhere and it would ruin his great reputation. He has to kill her. Right. And he also gets her money when in doing so. Exactly. So going back to what Stanford's attorneys claimed, the sheriff, the mechanic, and James were all working together to frame Allen. Let's dig into what they, exactly it was that they were claiming. Their opener for this theory was just how odd it was that police went out to Athalia's high-profile murder 
and acted like they had never once handled a case before in their life. They had never gone to training, nothing. Like they act like they were chickens with their fucking heads cut off out there. Adding that, those who were searching the marshes with the mechanic, Dewey Lee that day, because it was a search party, claimed that as soon as they like started the search, many people testified that they watched Dewey Lee, the mechanic, without stopping, beeline for the location where he pulled the box up just after arriving. Like hadn't even been there for 15 minutes. How fucking convenient is that? And they must be psychic. Right. They claimed that Lee had gotten there early that morning or the sheriff had placed it when closing down the search area or that someone had placed it there, put all the evidence in the box and maybe did go still Stanford's watch and put it in this box. Damn. Right. And like, just how odd is it that they can't test to be sure that it's Athalia's blood? Yeah. Fucking convenient. It's really convenient. So with all these large claims and like all this drama coming out in court, of course, they're going to have to bring the accused to the stand, which is exactly what the defense did. And they basically painted Dewey Lee as a con artist, a scammer. And many people were like, yeah, he is literally the dirtiest dude I've ever met in my life. Like, of course, would do anything for a buck. Right. It was bad. A lot of people, it was really, it looked really bad. It like kind of turned into who is on the stand? Like, who, who are we trying right now? Right. Stanford, James, the sheriff, or Dewey? Which one? So, one of these people that came forward to testify against Dewey Lee was this woman named Adele McLaughlin. She was a data processing clerk that had got off work, came home, and just decided to go on a little bike ride down Athalia Street just two hours before Athalia was murdered. She passed by Athalia's house a few times, and she testified that every time she passed it, girls saw Dewey Lee walking around Athalia's yard. Fucking convenient for Mr. Dewey. Right. All in all, we really have no idea why James would target her or what she was talking about in that letter. We can only assume that it is money, but either way, this case remains unsolved. I literally was sold on Stafford until you brought up Lindsay. I had no fucking thought. And I should have known because I was like, why are you mentioning your husband? But I didn't even think of that. I was like, it's a fucker Stafford. He yeah. fucking put sugar Because in it her sounds like tank. he did it, dude. Like it really. So I don't, I'm like kind of torn. It's like almost like too convincing that it could be, it's probably a setup. Right. That's you how know? I feel. That's how I feel. Like it's just a little too much evidence and mm-hmm. leading up to and it. And maybe like, like Francis like found out something that would have put, like found out something that was like, you know, I learned that uh, Stanford's watch was stolen and he just reported it missing and so that means like he didn't do it someone's trying to frame him and maybe told james athalia's husband about it and was like telling him in confidence like and, i'm working and that's with, I'm why on your side. that's why it took so long for her i mean because she started running her mouth right how lo- quickly quick. after so they would have shut her down quick mm-hmm. but they waited until he got on bail mm-hmm. and they're like oh perfect time perfect time and also they were talking about like the area that this vac- vacant lot was in. Apparently like that's not the typical route that she would take on her night walk. So they think that she was going to meet someone to exchange information. Oh shit. There. Yeah. I don't know. I think it was her husband. I don't know. I don't know. I think it could be either of them. I yeah. mean, Stanford, I mean, they fucking, it, I mean, if, it's, if it has, if it has nothing to do with her husband, then his attorneys Mm -hmm. his legal team is incredible incredible because holy fuck holy fuck they they came up there with evidence they had done an entire investigation on their own yeah that's crazy i loved it 
Yeah, that was a crazy case. When I when I came across, I was like, this is the type of shit I'm looking for. I love that. I love like mysteries. That's yeah. what that's what I like. Like people are like, oh, you love true crime. I'm like, no, I don't like hearing about someone getting murdered. I love mysteries. I yeah. love investigating. I love that search. Like I love that. Yeah. It was really good. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks. I have something behind my ear. I have something on the back of my head. Well, I've had this bump like forever and like now it's kind of freaking me out because it's like irritated and like, oh no, it just looks a little weird. It's not a mole. It's not a pimple. Do you have a picture of it? Yeah, but I'd rather you come look at it. Okay. All right, guys, we're going to get off. I'm going to go pick Morgan's head. All right. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.